Are there any people here, you don't have to raise your hand, if you give me a grunt or something, give me an idea. Um, do you always expect the worst thing to happen? Anybody? Yes, I'm hearing some yeses. Yeah, I don't think you're alone. Um, a little bit ago, I was reading a thread on Reddit where people were talking about this. And the, the person who posted the thread was Tweetbird101. And Tweetbird said this, I do. When I fly, I expect it to crash. When I go to the doctor, I expect bad news. I don't think I deserve good news. Like now, I have a mole on my back that's probably nothing. But I need to get it checked out. But I'm sure that I don't deserve good news about it and that it has to be cancerous. In fact, my life has been going pretty smoothly and well for the last few years. That just makes it more likely that I'm due for bad news. Isn't that a weird way of thinking? Does this happen to anyone else? Patchy Doll responds, I can relate to this. Whenever something good happens, I feel off, aware, until something bad happens to balance it out. I just associate a good thing happening with being a prelude to a bad thing, and when that bad thing happens, it's a feeling of relief. It's almost funny at times. You know, I think, of course, the, cart, of course the cat barfed on my sandal. I found a $20 bill on the ground last week. <laughs> funny enough, I don't get that feeling in reverse. If bad things happen without having a good thing in recent memory, it's just a bad thing. I'm not waiting for a good thing to balance it out. And the more people talked, and the longer I read and followed this thread, I noticed how many people began to associate their expectations of the worst or, uh, to not just random bad things happening, but instead to the universe or God colluding against them. So, and you can tell where this is going just by this person's name. Humanity is a waste, posted. <laughs> uh, you know, real positive. I'm sure this is going to be uplifting. Oh, yeah. If something bad happens, it's because I deserve it. Add in the old religious guilt and its divine punishment. If something good goes on, I wait for the shoe to drop because good doesn't last. Tweetbird put it this way. Does anyone else ever imagine a mean, horrible deity who essentially hates you and doesn't want you to be happy? I've done this for years. How do you think or expect that things are going to play out in your life? And more specifically, do you expect that if God was involved, that your life, or maybe even here at this service, that the result would be good? No, I mean, I mean actually really what do you expect? Like not what the right answer is. And not just in a general sense to human, humankind as a whole, but to you. As a person, what do you expect to be the result of God's involvement in your life? You know, the longer I live, I'm more and more convinced that the, there's a question that everything turns on. Specifically, the question is, is Jesus really good? Is what he offers better than what you've already experienced? In fact, I think, and this is what we're talking about in this series, that the experience of salvation hinges on how we answer this question and whether our choices that come after our answer mirror how we answer the question. In this series, we're looking at how we can experience salvation in the here and the now, not as something that may or may not happen once you die, but 
How can we experience salvation in this life? A renewed, better life now. Not at some distant point in the future, but today. And this morning, we're going to look at what are some of the things that can keep us from leaning into or pursuing or following Jesus with the hope that we can experience now in our current reality? Is Jesus really good? And the answer to that question isn't always obvious. Sometimes I think it can be scary for people, and that's what we're going to look at in our passage today. The people who meet Jesus along his travels and how scary it can be for them to encounter him and how the answer to is Jesus really good isn't so obvious all the time. But it can make all the difference. Does that sound kind of interesting? Maybe pique your interest? All right. So what we're going to do, we're going to look at a big chunk of scripture today because we want to look at how several people interact with Jesus. So I'm going to read it. You're going to stay awake, okay, because it's long. <laughs> but I will tell you this. This passage has lots of action. There's not, you know, there's, there's no chilling out. There's no, this isn't one of the passages where he goes off and prays in silence. This is move, on the move, on the move. So this is the entire chapter 5 of Mark. You guys ready? Yeah. Okay. They went across the lake to a region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit, see, this is, this is not going to be boring, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. And this man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him even, anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. And he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside, and the demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. And he gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. And the herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and were drowned. And those tending, not boring, right? Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. They were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. And then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, a man, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. And Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people. And tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was still by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders, a man named Jairus, came, and he saw Jesus and fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come, put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, 
she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. And immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. And at once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him and he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And he told her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Be freed from your suffering. And while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? And overhearing what was said, Jesus told them, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him. And after he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went to where the child was took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kaum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. And at this, they were completely astonished. And he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. So, I'm not sure if you noticed, it was a longer passage. But this whole group of stories starts with a question. What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. Is Jesus really good? What a great question. And how very real. What do you expect from Jesus? What do you expect God wants to do in your life? Do you ever wonder... What do you want with me, God? Do you want to torture me? Do you want to make me suffer? Do you want to punish me? What do you want with me? You know, if you look at this passage, there's a common theme in all of these stories. I don't know if you realize it, but in every story, people are constantly begging Jesus for something. They're often on their knees, pleading for Jesus to come, to leave, to heal, to welcome, to have compassion. And if we look closely at these interactions, we can see some reasons, I think, why fear is often our first response to approaching God. How many times in this passage does someone say, or, or does it say about the people, they were afraid? They were afraid. You can almost start a new story each time when you hear that phrase. But they were afraid. Do not be afraid. What do we fear? Because I think the things that we fear are the things that keep us from experiencing what Jesus has for us now. They're the things that keep us uh, from welcoming in the deliverance that comes with new life. Let's look at a couple of these. First, we fear that we'll lose. I, I just I, I can't help but be struck by the reaction of the townspeople in the story. Did that surprise anyone? So there's this famous guy from their town living in the tombs, who's been crazy for years, and he's healed in this really remarkable way. 
And you would think this might be kind of a moment to celebrate, right? To be excited. But instead, Mark tells us they had this reaction, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and the pigs, and then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Pleaded with him to leave. Isn't that interesting? Now, here's what I think is going on here. Here's my best take. So the man of the Gezerines, obviously he has demons, right? That's the, a big detail in the story. He had so many that his life was completely out of control, right? He couldn't control what was going on. Now, for most of us, I think it's safe to say this isn't the case. First of all, for every person in this room, you're not in the woodlands right now, woodland cemetery, running around, bouncing off the stones and doing terrible things to yourself, right? You're here in right mind in this room. We're all clothed today. But if we're honest, I think we all have our own demons. We have things that are messing up our lives, old hurts, patterns of sin, broken relationships, things that really hinder our lives and make it harder to live, that steal our energy. But we can manage. We've figured out how to get by. We can look good even, even while things don't quite work. And here's the thing, we're comfortable with it. We've sort of figured out a normal, even if it's not good for us, we've figured out how to do it. We've adjusted. I told this story about a year ago, maybe a year and a half, but I'll tell it again because it's, it's true and it makes sense to me. When I was dating Becca, um, I, obviously I was a bachelor, and uh, I wasn't the neatest of people. And I remember Becca came in, and she used our bathroom, and uh, she found a cockroach stuck in the paint <laughs> of the wall. And in an effort to make her feel better, I said, don't, don't, don't worry about that. That's been there for months. <laughs> I either might, there's no new cockroaches. And, you know, what I, would, what I would do is I would do major cleans when I would have guests come that would, would stay in my room. Otherwise, you'd have to jump from my doorway into my bed or else you'd step on something. Who knows what? But I would clean it. You know how I would clean? Where do you think everything went? In the closet, right. So I've got some people who do similar things, right? Um, so, but here's the thing. You shove everything in a closet. It looks clean, but it doesn't work. Because certain things get stuffed in there sometimes you need, like uh, your car insurance bill, which can stay in there months until your car insurance is no longer void, or is void and no longer in what do you get, it, right? It didn't work. It wasn't there. Anyway, I didn't pay the bill. You, you're tracking me? Now, I'm just saying there are patterns in our lives we get used to, we're comfortable with, that don't actually work or serve us. That's just my old bachelor pad. What if the oppressed, broken thing in my life is a relationship, an addiction, a pattern that hurts the people that I love? Are we more afraid of light than we are of darkness? The townspeople are more afraid of Jesus than the demons in their lives. And as long as they can manage their sin, keep, keep it outside in the tombs, 
that's fine. But if Jesus wants to come into the city, no, that's too close. That's uncomfortable. That's scary. They're afraid. So instead of encountering Jesus and experiencing freedom, love, they're afraid. And they'd rather continue to live with what isn't working in their life, what's sapping their energy, their life, their peace. And if we're afraid of Jesus and don't let him in, we'll embrace darkness and miss the light. What else? Well, I think we also fear that we're unimportant. Now, how must, how must, how must Jairus have felt? He goes to this rabbi healer. He's got all of his faith working. Jesus agrees to come to his house. His daughter is on death's door. This is his one hope. And on the way to his house, Jesus stops. Not for a moment, but he goes looking for someone. We don't know how long it takes, but she, it's not immediately clear who's touched him. And he's looking for that woman. And it takes a long time. And then when he finds her, he has a conversation. Meanwhile, your daughter is dying. It says he pleaded earnestly with him. My daughter is dying. Please come. Put your hands on her so she'll be healed. But Jesus takes so long that it says this later, your daughter's dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? How did he feel? Probably like a lot of us feel when it seems like our prayers are going unanswered. When we've done all that we feel that we're supposed to do, all that we can think to do and things aren't working out. When things seem to be working out for other people. Other people around us, but not us. When we're waiting and we feel like we're dying or something important to us is on life support, we feel forgotten. Who wouldn't feel left out or put down, or disillusioned. And is he? Well, we're going to come back to that a little bit later. But before we get to that, I want to look at a third fear that can hinder us from feeling love or pursuing salvation in Jesus, and that's the fear of the whole truth. I want you to notice something, a detail that is really fun, but you might miss. So you notice it says in verse 30, at at once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him, and he turned around the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? All right, if you just read this story, you think, well, of course, he feels this power zap out of his body or something. I don't know what that would feel like. And he's going to stop because, oh my gosh, power's gone in my body. Here's the thing, though. If you read the account of Jesus' life in Luke, uh, we're reading in Mark today, but if you read it in Luke, it tells the same story. Uh, but two chapters earlier, there's this experience. It says in Luke 6, 17 to 20. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Their, those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and all the people tried to touch him because power was coming out from him and healing them all. I only bring this up because, yeah, I would think if power went out for me, I would want to stop and see what was up. But Jesus obviously was having a different experience of life than I typically have. And that this was a common occurrence. So he was living his life amongst crowds crying around him. And people were getting healed from time to time. At least enough that it's just like in this little couple senses here. There's, oh yeah, no, by the way, like everybody was getting healed or was reaching out to him. So it wasn't weird for Jesus is what I'm trying to say. 
It wouldn't be unusual for power to go out from him. So why does he stop? I think the answer here lies in the situation of the woman who's referred to as a bleeding woman. We don't get her name. And I think it's because she certainly was physically weak from the illness. And not only was she broke from pursuing all different kinds of remedies, but according to ancient purity laws, I don't know if you know this, uh, if you're bleeding, you're, un- you're unclean. And if you're unclean, anyone who touches you is unclean. And she's been bleeding for 12 years, which means anyone who has any type of intimacy with her, who gives her a hug, is then unclean for a certain period of time. And with this knowledge in mind, a lot of scholars think that it's very likely because of this condition, she probably had to live outside the city. She probably couldn't get very many visitors. She probably couldn't be in a relationship with someone because every time she was touched, that person would be unclean. Can you imagine not being touched for 12 years? So when she approaches Jesus, the last thing she wants to do is tell him her whole story. She's ashamed. She wants to sneak up, touch him, and run. After all, what would he do if he knew who she was and her story and that she was unclean and that she touched him? And what would the people around her do if they realized that she may have touched him? So she's scared. And this woman's needs, they're more than physical. Just healing her body would have helped her physically immensely, yes, but would have left her with a closet full of loneliness, emotional scars, and shame. She would have been healed in one sense, but certainly not whole in another. There's another healing that needed to take place. Can you see that? So Jesus stops because he knows there's more going on here. Most of the people who touched him, they needed some kind of healing. She needed some kinds of healing. If he just let her go, she would have carried on with her shame. But instead, calls her in front of him, and he says, tell me your whole story. Do you notice that? Get it all out. He wants us to know that our whole story is known and we're loved. We don't have to be afraid. He wants to affirm our real, true selves. He wants to accept us for who we really are, even the hidden parts and the parts that need redemption. But like I've said, when we see in these stories, that's not easy. How can we open ourselves up to Jesus? How can we expect something good from God? trust. At some point, it always boils down to this. You know, following Jesus, you know what it is? It's a faith. That sounds great, right? We all want faith to be powerful in our lives. But when we realize that faith means we have to trust and in the face of the unknown. You know, it's not that we can't know anything. We can know enough that gets us over the hump to move forward, to trust, to try something new, to reach out to Jesus, to live in a different way because we see 
him living that way or teaching us to do that. But the key to experiencing a good God, or the key, I think, to experiencing salvation now, is choosing trust. This is not to say that Jesus doesn't take initiative in this passage. We see that again. He does come after us. He comes after the Gezerine man and the woman who's been bleeding. He stops everything to reach out to her. But as he does, did you notice this? He lays opportunities in front of people to allow them to choose. In today's passage, fear, that's huge, right? Fear is the thing that argues against trust. The townspeople fear they will lose. Jairus fears that he's forgotten. The woman fears that she'll be abused. The people in this passage who choose to trust and are proactive in their trust, they experience this crazy deep affirmation. Miracles happen in their lives. New life, the deliverance of new life comes into their experience of life. Salvation. Here's what I'm trying to say. Jesus will ask for and give far more than we expect. Ask for and give far more than we expect. So the town's afraid, right? They ask for nothing, (laughs) and they miss the chance to experience salvation. Jairus hopes for healing, is asked to believe for resurrection, and receives his daughter back from the dead. The woman hopes for one physical healing, is asked for public exposure, and receives two healings. Those are big asks, but also big returns. You know, in some senses, I think the townspeople are right. Jesus is going to ask for a lot, and they know it. But Jesus is also going to give back so much more. That's what faith is. That's why following Jesus is a faith. It's an expression of faith. And it's not just the miracles that the presence of Jesus in their life can bring. It's the peace of mind and soul that seeing who he really is brings. It's knowing that you will never be forgotten. It's knowing that you're fully known and accepted. It's salvation here and now, being delivered from the broken things in your life that you've just learned to put up with or deal with or that slowly tear you down for the rest of your life. Experiencing deliverance from those things. It's not easy to trust. It's just not easy to trust. Just think about the relationships in your life, your significant others. It's not easy to trust sometimes. So to help us, Jesus does this. He offers his hand through the cross. What does that mean? That's, that's too heady language, I think. So let's talk about that a little bit. When Jesus goes to see Jairus' daughter, she's dead. And when he goes to her, he says something that's so unique to the Aramaic language that Jesus spoke that when Mark tells the story, he doesn't translate Aramaic into Greek. I don't know if you know this, a little trivia point for you, but when Jesus spoke, he traveled, he spoke in Aramaic. That was a common language at that time. But when people wrote things down, they wrote it in Greek. So when people tell the stories of Jesus, they translate his Aramaic into Greek and tell the story, except here, because they didn't have the Greek words to really express uh, what is said in Aramaic, this talitha kaum. 
What does that mean? Well, Talitha literally means little girl. But little girl, just like Greek, doesn't do justice to the Aramaic, doesn't do justice to it either. It's more like a pet name or a term of endearment. It'd be like calling someone honey, right? And kawum means arise or simply get up. So it's very similar to what a father or mother might say to their daughter first thing in the morning when it's time to get up, get ready for school. Or this morning, time to get up, get ready for church. Time to get up, honey. Little baby, time to get up. Sweetheart, something along those lines. It was sweet, it was tender, unassuming, intimate, quiet, yet had the power to raise the dead. It was the power of the universe exercised with incredible gentleness. This, this is the way Jesus reaches out to us. It's hard to trust God. He knows it. So we have this picture to encourage us, along with the picture of his life. Remember, Jesus not, not only offers his hand, but he went to great lengths to make this invitation available and real to all of us. I heard one theologian put it this way. It says, Jesus let go of his father's hand to take hold of ours. That's what we see happening in the cross the image we have of the cross, which stands as a moment in history to remind us that God is in this for our good. The cross is not to shame us or guilt us or scare us. It's to demonstrate how deep and long and wide is the love that God has for us. Love that calls us daughter, that knows what's hidden and still reaches out to us. That love that's powerful and working in our lives, even when we're afraid that we're forgotten. This is where the deepest sense of affirmation comes. God became a man, went to the cross to end separation between us and God, to offer us his hand. And for some reason, I think a lot of us, we can believe that this is true for the sake of humankind, but struggle to believe it personally for ourselves. So we get this picture a personal one, daughter, son, sweetheart, honey, get up. Take my hand. Trust me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this image. Jesus, thank you for this image. Spirit, thank you for this image. feel like, God, these ideas, even if they make sense in our head, sometimes they don't, are so hard sometimes to take into our deepest souls. So we invite you to come and make them real in our lives, even now this morning, even as we pray, even as we sing songs. Would your real presence be here? Would you give us more of yourself? Holy Spirit, to make these real so that when we have choices to make and we see broken patterns, when you're present to us, we have an opportunity.
to follow, who will have just enough experience, just enough grace, or more, to say yes, to follow, to trust. Especially with the counterintuitive things that you ask us to do sometimes. Make it real. Amen.